how long expected Jesus. Now, that's kind of ironic uh, uh, carol that uh, Kirk picked out for us. Which One, it's kind of ironic that we're singing a carol by Charles Wesley as we are looking at Romans 9, which is a very uh, Calvinistic passage. And uh, Charles Wesley was an Arminian who uh, uh, would not uh, agree with much of what uh, we are saying in this passage. And yet, it's also ironic for another reason. Look at that verse. Come thou long expected Jesus. There's about, I don't even know how many, but I know there's more than two. There's like five or six stanzas to this passage, uh, to this carol. And when you look at this carol, it's saturated with the Old Testament promises of come thou long expected uh, Jesus. The idea is, the whole Old Testament is pointing to this coming Messiah, this coming Jesus. Anyone who reads the Old Testament should expect Jesus, or not not Jesus by name, but Christ, the Christ to come. Now, here's the irony of it. According to Romans 9, which we're studying, when he came, he wasn't expected. And not only was he not expected, but when he clearly presented himself, hey, I'm the one who has been promised throughout the Old Testament, his people, the chosen people of Israel, rejected him and continue to reject him in large numbers. So it's it's just kind of ironic as we're singing this carol as we dive in here to Romans chapter 9. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And uh, we have been in this. We're making very good progress, no matter what you may believe or think. Uh, we are moving through this very rapidly, and we could move through it far more slower because there is so much, so much in this passage. But we're going to finish Romans 9 today. And then what we'll do at the uh, first of the year, we'll continue on. We're going to go through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Then we'll take a break and uh, see what God has for us to study after that. But I want to do 9, 10, and 11 together because... 9, 10, 11 are a section that answers one question, and it's the question I raise, that, that this carol raises for us. Why has so many, the majority of God's chosen people, the people of Israel, to whom had all these privileges, all these promises, why have they rejected Christ in such large numbers? Not all of them. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this very letter, he was a Jew. He accepted Christ, but the vast majority didn't. The question becomes, has God's word, his saving promises to Israel, have they failed in light of the fact that so many Jews have rejected Christ and are doomed to eternal punishment? Now, we went through Romans 9, and as we conclude, uh, the answer kind of, the thing that came to my mind was, has this been a wilderness of frustration for you, or has it been an oasis of worship? Okay, as we conclude Romans 9, I can't help but think, okay, wonder what, what, what has this experience been? How many, oh, you know, wilderness of frustration, any frustration going through this, accepting this, understanding this? Rick, I'm looking at you. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And, and it has been for me as well, so Rick, you're not alone. Uh, Romans 9 can be a wilderness of frustration and friction, and it has been. Uh, this teaching uh, has caused people to be uh, to get angry, to uh, to just get into fights, and to just just go crazy going through this, and, and it can be frustrating. 
But it's especially frustrating to us if we come to it with a man-centered perspective. If we come to Romans 9 and say, I'm going to try to understand what is taught in Romans 9 from my own understanding, from my own perspective, what I think, you're going to be very frustrated going through this. Now, the good news is Paul knows that and God knows that. And so he raises the very frustrations and then answers them. Now, what gets frustrating is his answers aren't, aren't always the answers what? That we would want. It aren't always the answers that we would give. So, as we look at the... Uh, so, let's kind of... Uh, I want to work through the chapter again and uh, kind of see where the frustration is. As we look at the overwhelming rejection of Jesus Christ by Israel, and there's no doubt that that's true, God's chosen people, and begin to want, we begin to wonder if God's promises to them have what? Failed. Have they failed? Okay, that's the first frustration. And you've probably experienced that in witnessing or praying for unsaved friends and neighbors. You, you pray for them and you're like, is their unbelief causing God's word to not be true that he wants to save people? You ever get frustrated with the unbelief of people you're trying to witness to? First of all, I hope you're witnessing. And if you, you are, then you do get frustrated with it because people do not just instantly receive Christ. Well, Paul's answer here was clear. No, God's promise of salvation for Jew or Gentile is rooted. It's rooted in God's sovereign, unconditional election. Listen, people's choice of unbelief does not hinder or stop God's word from being fulfilled. Can I hear an amen on that? Listen, unbelief does not hinder the purposes and cause the promises of God to fail. God is working out his purpose of election for his glory and for the greatest good, and may I say for the greatest amount of mercy to be shown to undeserving sinners. We saw that in verses 6 through 13. But if salvation is ultimately dependent on God's choice of us and not ultimately our choice of him, that raises the question of what? Fairness. It raises the question of fairness. Is God then unfair in choosing some to be saved based not on anything in them, birth, belief, behavior, but solely on his sovereign purpose in election? Is that fair? Is God being just in choosing some and permitting others to experience his wrath? Paul's answer? No. Unconditional election reflects, it reflects the perfection of God's character in all its fullness. Because here's the bottom line. God is not just love. And God is not just wrath. God is both love, mercy, and judgment. God is both love and Light. God is both a God who judges sin, but he's also a God who shows mercy to sinners. And election reveals that he always chooses for the fame of his name. He always chooses according to his righteous character, which does two things. Shows mercy to the undeserving and shows judgment to the deserving. And here's the reality. The undeserving are also the deserving. Got it? We're all, everybody is undeserving. 
And so he shows to some mercy, to other others wrath. But that brings us to number three. But if God is that sovereign in salvation, and it would appear from Romans 9 that he is, as well as many other passages, and no one ultimately resists his will, and they can't, because if he's ultimately sovereign, then nothing can is greater than his will. Doesn't that mean our choices are meaningless and everything is determined by what? Fate. Determined by fate. Isn't that what that means? Paul's answer is clear. No. And he answers it in verses 19 through 29 in two ways. Who are we to question God's sovereign right to accomplish his own purposes? Who are we as sinners to tell God who to save and how to do it? That's God's right, not ours. Secondly, it says, Paul's answer is, unconditional election reveals the riches of God's glorious mercy against the backdrop of his long-suffering wrath. I mean, God has every right to immediately send us to hell the moment we're born. Because we're born sinners, and then we choose to be sinners. But he's long-suffering. He extends, he, 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 he delays his wrath, and against that backdrop, chooses some to be saved. So, that brings us to the fourth the fourth frustration, but doesn't God's sovereignty in unconditional election eliminate the need for faith? Doesn't God's sovereignty in unconditional election eliminate the need for faith? In other words, after all that we've seen in this chapter, why, why preach the gospel if everything's already settled in eternity. Fair enough? I mean, if God has determined these things, if God is sovereign over these things, then why even preach the gospel? If they're supposed to get saved, they'll get what? And if they're not supposed to get saved, they won't get saved. Why do we need to worry about? Why pray for the lost? A lot of people, when you talk about God's sovereignty, they're like, well, why pray if God already knows what he's going to do? Then what's Where's prayer fit into that? Why witness and evangelize? Why give to missions? I mean, here we just had a missions report. Why do we have a missions report if this is all in God's sovereignty, if God has already determined all these things? If it all depends on God's sovereignty and not human responsibility, then where does faith come in? Is there no room for faith? And Paul's answer is clear. Unconditional election results unconditional election results in God's saving promises being fulfilled by grace through faith in Christ without eliminating human responsibility. You say, how can that be? Well, that's what today's lesson is going to look like. How can that be? Help me work through that. Because here's the reality. God has not only predestined who will be saved, he has predestined how they will be. And how will they be saved? Through the preaching of the gospel and responding by faith and repentance. So if that's his means, and it's going to happen, and he's determined that we are to be a part of that process, then we are a part of that process. How's that work together? I don't know. Let's study and find out. Well, would you agree that this, all of the, what I just said could be frustrating? Can it be confusing? 
Can it be such that you're like, this is a wilderness of frustration that I want to get out of as soon as possible. Let's move on. And at the beginning of the year, we will. We'll move on to Romans 10. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How will they hear unless they uh, are pre? Uh, there's a preacher, and how will he preach unless he's sent? And how will they hear? And all, I mean, all of that is coming. But the reality is, where it's going to take us is an oasis of worship. Romans nine can be a, an oasis of wonder and worship, but it's only that when you come to it from a God-centered perspective. So my prayer is that what we have done in these weeks, previous weeks, and what we're going to do even today, and what we will do next week, is going to help you turn this wilderness of frustration into an oasis of worship. And I will say this, if you, if you try to reduce all this down to what you can understand, you will always be frustrated. Well, in fact, if, if you reduce it to what you can understand, you'll be wrong, okay? Because what's here is greater than that. So you, you, you can't try to say, look, I'm frustrated because, you know, I want to just simply explain this. Rick and I were talking about this, and he was frustrated. I said, where's your frustration? He said, well, I want to simply explain this. I said, well, wow, welcome to my world. I, I'd love to, I've been trying to simply explain it. You're not going to be able to do that. Release that expectation. Don't think that you and I can, can package this in something that it makes perfect sense. Because if it does, then it's not God. And really, you have man's religion instead of God's worship. And so if you'll come to this, here, here's where it, this, these two, three chapters will lead us. Turn to Romans eleven thirty four through 36. Rather than trying to explain it, rather than trying to get it to where all the pieces fit together, instead surrender to it and allow yourself to glory in the sovereignty of your awesome Savior, look at Romans eleven thirty four through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Not me. Who has been his counselor? I've tried. It doesn't work. Who, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, God, you owe me. I haven't given anything to God. He's given everything to me. He doesn't have to answer to me. I need to respond and answer to him because everything I have, the breath I'm breathing now, the words I'm saying, the ability to stand here, the fact that I am alive, the fact that I have a wonderful wife, a beautiful daughter, a wonderful church, the fact that I've lived nearly 50 years is all a gift from him. And he didn't owe me. The second I was born, I was a sinner. And he didn't deserve any. All of that's common grace. So, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And here's verse 36. Here's where you got to get to. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, I am convinced of what I have studied and presented to you. I'm not saying it's the last place I've landed. It's, I'm just convinced that if you'll go back, listen, glenwoodconnection.org. Listen to the lessons. I'm convinced of what I've taught. That's why I've taught it. But I recognize that others interpret this difficult chapter in different ways, okay? In fact, uh, Ray Pritchard is a famous uh, Bible teacher. He went to Dallas, and, and he takes a similar view of Romans 9 as I've taught. And after preaching a sermon on predestination based on this 
chapter. Uh, he said someone in his church went home and studied everything out for themselves and came back and told him, Pastor, I came to different conclusions on nearly everything you taught. You know, and Ray was okay with that. And guess what? I'm okay with that. If you study this out and you come to a totally different conclusion than I do, that's great. But here's my here's the one condition on that. The condition is as long as your beliefs are based on the text and context of Scripture. Not that, hey, I went home and I thought about it. I examined my navel for a while. You know, I meditated on the clouds and I came to the conclusion that you're wrong. Well, that's great, but that's that's not, you know, that's not the point. Study this out. And if you come to different conclusions, show it from Scripture. Show and, and show it from Romans 9. You say, well, what about over here? You know, okay, that's great. But how does that relate to Romans 9? As long as you come to it, not based on just what you think or what you want to believe, and certainly we shouldn't come to it based on an attitude that wants to answer back to God. That was the wrong attitude we've already seen. Don't answer back to God. And make sure that your disagreement is with him, you know, and not just with another, because you and I can disagree and it doesn't matter a hill of beans, amen? But when we disagree with God, then that's another issue. The issues involved in Romans 9 are really important, and they intersect two areas, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So we will talk more about how to agree when we disagree on these things, how some of the, the different ways of interpreting Romans 9. We'll look at that next week. We'll look at uh, even the issue of double predestination. And, and does God uh, choose those who will not believe in the same way that he chooses those who believe? So I'm sure you'll want to come next week. Merry Christmas. Um, I would like to hear about... Um, but here's what I want to do. Before I move from this point, I want to ask you this. In, in uh, This week, those of you that get our... E, our uh, email blast there was a a uh, link uh for our class and if you don't get our uh, uh our notifications from the new life class let me know give me your email we'll get you on that there was a link for you to click what have i learned from romans 9 what have what what's been my oasis of worship experience what has been my aha moment what has been that moment where god said god spoke to you would you, would you click on that link? Would you just email me and share that with me? I'd love to hear that. Also, those of you that have been in the wilderness of frustration, I'd love to hear about that. I mean, that's what, that's what Rick and I, we were talking about, and I learned from them. And, and hopefully I, I helped you, Rick. I don't know. I, yeah, okay, there you go, there you go. So Rick, hang on. well, he's still here. I mean, you know, at one point he asked Tyrone, what are you teaching? <laughs> and uh so Rick, rick's still here so i you know i'm glad you know he, he didn't bail yet so hang in there come next week yeah you can bail after next week um so would you share that would you share that because i can relate to both the frustrations and the wonder of worshiping a sovereign god so that brings us today where does faith come into the picture where does faith come into the picture well here's the answer not where we expect it to. Not where we expect it to. I, this chapter is amazing. Now, some of you have been waiting this whole series just for this one on faith. Yeah, I mean, is, is, are you ever going to get to faith? Where does this fit in? Well, here it is. Not where you expect. Here's the reality. We expect faith to come in earlier in this chapter. We have expected faith to come in earlier 
in this chapter. Why do I say that? Look at Romans 9.11. Look at Romans 9.11. Here's where we expect faith to come in. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing for either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of, and where would we expect? Because of faith in him. That's what we would have, see, that's where we wanted it. And that's typically where Paul says, not of works, but of salvation is not of works. And how would you complete that? But of faith. But how does he complete it? How does he complete it? Not because of works, but because of me? No, because of him who calls. And calling is almost the same as choosing. He calls those who, those whom he has chosen. It's his initiative. Romans 9.15 is where we expected faith to come in. Look at Romans 9.15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom believes in me. Right? That's where we, that's what we would, I have mercy. I look down through the corridors of time. I use my all, uh, my omniscience, my all knowing knowledge, and I know who will choose me. So I show mercy on him who I know will choose me. But what does he say? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on the woman who believes in me. No, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9.16, we expect faith to come in. So it then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on him who exercises faith. Well, that's, that's silliness in light of the first thing he says. What's the first part of that? Not on, uh, it depends not on human will or exertion. That, that eliminates our salvation ultimately depending on faith. I mean, you can't fit it into that. That totally eliminates it. So what does it rely on ultimately? But on God who has mercy. Mercy means we don't deserve it. And if we don't deserve it, we didn't do anything to earn it. And there's nothing we can show to God to say, pick me, pick me, pick me. I'm better than her or him. No, I'm, I'm as bad as everybody. Mercy. 9.18. 9.18 is where we would expect faith. So then he has mercy on whomever calls on the name of the Lord. That's what we would write. And that's what he will write in Romans 10. And he hardens whomever rejects him. That's what we want to put into those verses. But what does he say? So then he has mercy on what? Whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he will. And when faith, so listen, we think faith should come in earlier. And when it doesn't, you know what conclusion we come to? We come to the conclusion there's no room for faith at all. If it doesn't come in where I think it should, then any other option means there's no room for it. Isn't that how we think? That's the wrong way to think. There is a place for faith. And it does come in. Second point, Paul brings in faith later. Not when we expect it. In fact, he brings it in in a way that blows me. Having worked through this and saying, okay, yes, it's of God. It's of God. Notice what he says in verse. Notice what he says in verse 30. Because here's the final question. Here's the final question, major question in this chapter. What shall we say then? Here's his conclusion. What should we conclude to these things? And what does the natural person say? Well, in light of, if I buy into all this argument, the natural conclusion I'm going to have is 
there's no room for faith. It's all of God, and I don't really have a choice in the matter. But here's the reality. Here's what Paul says. Let's read these verses. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by what? By faith. 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 But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by what? By faith. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on what? Works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever what? Believes in him. And who is the stumbling stone? The the rock of offense? Jesus Christ. So whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. In other words, they will be saved. So here's what's funny. Is at a point. In the argument where you would think Paul says, what's the conclusion? He would say, it's all about God's sovereignty. What does he highlight? Human responsibility. So we think faith should be up here. And then when he shows us, no, it's not. Then we conclude, oh, then it's all of you and I don't have any responsibilities. And and he concludes with, I mean, I would never have written that. If I would have said, what should we then conclude? How many of us would say, oh, uh, Gentiles, Gentiles got saved by faith. Israel did not because they chose to reject him. Who would come to that conclusion? I wouldn't. In fact, I've kind of struggled with what's he doing? In fact, liberal interpreters who do not take God's word as inspired have said Paul just contradicted himself. Paul's confused. And they have elaborate things, you know, someone else wrote this and then they cut and paste the Bible together. And and this is why. No, no, this is a reasonable man who's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He knows what he's doing. So what is he doing? Well, first of all, believe me, I I have these conversations many times during the week. What, What are you doing, God? He's following here in Romans 9. Romans 9 follows the same pattern as Romans 8, 28 through 30. Remember, there's a connection between these passages. And in Romans uh, 28 through through 30, uh, God says, God foreknows. And then God predestines. And then God what? Oh, then God does what? He calls, right? And then God does what? Justify. Are you, your Bible's open to Romans 8, 28 through 30. So what's he do first? Whom he foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he what? He calls. And whom he calls, he, he justifies. And whom he justifies, he does what? Glorifies. All right? Now, Romans 9 is basically following the same pattern. He talks about God's predestination or election, overlapping terms. And he'll also talk about foreknowledge in Romans 11. We'll get to that. Then he talks about God calling 
out of both Gentile and Jew, right? Last week's lesson, verse 29. 29. And now he talks about faith. And what is justification is always by faith. So see, he's following the same pattern. Because here's the reality. Election, unconditional election does not eliminate the need for human response of faith. These two passages, they agree with that pattern. So, notice what it says in your notes. If we take the viewpoint of man, what shall you say then to Romans 9? What shall the natural man, you know, the person that's not in agreement with those uh, of faith, the natural conclusion of is one of unbelief and human reasoning is this. It's all of God, so there's no room for human responsibility. I might as well not preach. I might as well not pray. I might as well not witness. I might as well not even accept Christ. It's all of God. That's the natural man. But notice what Paul says in verse 30. What shall we say? It's no longer the antagonism. He dealt with the antagonism in the previous passage, he dealt with the antagonist. Now we're back on the ground of a believer. What shall we say then? Here's the biblical conclusion of belief in God's sovereignty. It's all of God, and there's still room for human responsibility. It's all of God. He takes the initiative, but there's still room for human responsibility. So let's take a look at Paul's conclusions. He says, What should we what shall we say then? What are his conclusions in light of unconditional election, especially the calling out of many Gentiles and so few Jews. What is his conclusion in verses 30 through 33? Let me give you four of them. The first is this. God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Paul doesn't come right out and say that, but he says it by emphasizing what? Faith. So here he's talked about sovereignty for 29 verses. He's hammered away at sovereignty. And then what does he end up saying? Faith, faith, faith. So what's he saying? Sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Here's the best that I can explain it, and I have it in your notes. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not equal. See, we say we believe in both, and we do. But when I say I believe in both of those, those two things are not equal. God's will is not equal to mine. Or there would be a lot of things different in this. Okay, so I believe in both, but they are not equal. They're like this. I believe in both, but one, God's sovereignty's will is always over my will. They are not equals because the Bible clearly exalts God's sovereignty over human responsibility. How else could you write verse 36? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's because his will is exalted over our will. But notice, the Bible exalts God's sovereignty over human responsibility, but does so in a way, and here's the key phrase, that does not eliminate human responsibility. Now, what you should be asking is, how can that be? Explain that for me. I'll believe that when I understand it. Good luck. Does that make sense? Are you with me? I can be able to explain it at the co- over the coffee pot in five minutes. Here's what you do, Rick. You say, 
you, you just memorize that sentence right there. You just memorize that sentence. You, how's this work together? Hey, sovereignty and human responsibility are not equals, but the, because the Bible clearly exalts one over the other, but does so in a way without eliminating human responsibility. Okay, let me give you some illustrations. Here's some classic illustrations. First of all, human resp- uh, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, they're like two uh, poles that are always in the Bible, so most times always in one verse or at least in one path, they're always together, and they're like two poles that go up all the way up in the sky, and somewhere in heaven, they connect and come together. But we can't see that. I can't explain that. I can't explain I won't be able to explain it until I get to heaven, and God may not choose to even explain it to us. Sense? Maybe not. Maybe that doesn't care. I like this one. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are two threads interwoven throughout Scripture. To be sure, one thread is stronger and unbreakable and greater than the other, but they are interwoven just the same. Think of a braid. And if you try to unravel one from the other, you will do damage to the Scriptures themselves. I like that. Interwoven together. One stronger than the other. One makes the other one unbreakable. But the reality is, if you try to extract one of those and you start unraveling that, you're going to unravel Scripture. A threefold cord is not soon broken. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest pastors of the 1800s, some would say of the entire, uh, you know, since the Apostle Paul. Great witness. Uh, preached to thousands, always uh, gave a, uh, you know, an opportunity to respond to the gospel, and yet he was a Calvinist. And he never fled from the seeming incompatibility of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to respond. And when challenged to do so, when challenged to say, hey, uh, make this make sense, here's what his answer is. I do not try to reconcile friends. Put this together for me. You know, they're opposed. No, they aren't. I don't try to reconcile. I don't have to reconcile what is not in conflict with Scripture. Not there. It's not in conflict. You can see it right here, what we've seen. Here's the best illustration. Donald Gray Barnhouse is another uh, great expositor of Scripture. And here's what he said to his audience one time. Imagine that, that there's a huge cross. So picture this huge cross. And in that cross is a door. And it has a door in it. And all you're asked to do is go through that door for salvation. On one side, the side facing you, there's an invitation. Whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. You stand there with your sin upon you. And you wonder if you should enter it or not. Finally, you do. And as you do, the burden of your sin drops away. And you are safe, free, and forgiven. Joyfully, you then turn around and see, see written on the backside of the cross through which you have just now entered the words chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, that's just that's just how it works. That is just how it works. The cross is a door that all you have to do is walk through to receive the free gift of salvation. Whosoever will may come. And yet when you walk through that door and turn back, you see written over that door, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's the best I can explain. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. And here's what here, here's the deal. So 
So Rick, we're, we're using you as our example. Rick, I hold to many doctrines that I cannot explain. And you know what? So do you. We all do hold to many doctrines that we know are clearly taught in Scripture and we can't explain. For instance, incarnation. Merry Christmas. Please explain to me the incarnation. Please explain to me how that which is infinite, divine, and eternal can be born in that which is finite and be contained in a baby. Please explain that to me. And, 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 and if you intend to not believe in that until, can you, until you can explain it, when will you believe in it? Well, and yet it's taught in Scripture. I believe in the virgin birth. Explain that one. A woman who has never known a man who is conceived by the Holy Spirit in, in her egg, is her, her egg, pardon my bluntness here, her egg is fertilized by the Holy Spirit to form a real, complete, normal human being who could actually die. Explain that one. Trinity. So many people get all messed up on the Trinity. How can there be three, one God in three persons? Well, if you're going to wait to understand that, you'll never believe it. You'll never believe it. It's just there. It's just there. And yet I believe it, and I can't explain it to you. I can draw you a little diagram. I can give you a couple of illustrations, but it's not going to explain it to the point to where you can grasp it with human reason. Inspiration of the Bible. Explain to me how a book written by various human beings they're different styles, they're different personalities, all evident in this text. Explain to me how it can be written by men and by God in such a way that their personalities are not violated and what is written is what they wanted to write and yet it's what God ultimately wanted to write and it's without error. Do you believe that? Explain it to me. Well, I can't. I just accept it. It's a mystery. How does human responsibility connect with God's sovereignty like it's taught in Romans 9? I can't explain it. It's a mystery, but it's there, and I believe it. This view of sovereignty not eliminating human responsibility is all over Scripture. So let's, we're going to look at some Scriptures. Let's look at the crucifixion of Christ. What I want you to see is, listen, you can't avoid Romans 9 and avoid this tension. In order to avoid the tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, you've got to avoid the Bible. Okay, so let's take a look at it, and let's work through it. And we'll work through these passages, and that's all, that's all we're going to be able to do. But this is, this is what we're going to look at. Crucifixion of Christ, Acts 4, 22 through 24. Turn there in your Bibles. Acts 4, or Acts 2, I'm sorry, Acts 2, 22 through 24. Acts 2, 22 through 24. Greatest event in history, the crucifixion of Christ, the basis for our salvation we're going to see how sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Notice what it says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Notice, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know what he just said? Jesus died because of God's sovereignty, and you're responsible for killing him. 
Jesus was going to die. God had predetermined that before the foundations of the world. And you did it in your response. Acts 4, 27 through 29. Move uh, to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, 27 through 29. Notice what it says. Again, Peter and John preaching. Or, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the early church praying. This is the belief of the early church. Praying. Praying to a sovereign God. And here's what they say. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There's the answer to who killed Jesus. Herod, Pilate, Jew, Gentile. We all were a part of it. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who's responsible? We are. Who predestined it? God did. Inspiration of Scripture. Turn to 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. I've already referred to uh, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. uh, Divine sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Notice what this verse says. Or actually, verse 21. For no prophecy, no prophecy was ever produced by whose will? The will of man. That's totally the sovereignty of God. But men spoke. Whose responsibility was it to speak? Man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? By the Holy Spirit. So who wrote the Bible? Who wrote Romans 9? Who wrote Romans 9? That's only half the answer. Who wrote Romans 9? Paul. Well, some of you are saying Paul, some of you are saying God. Who wrote Romans 9? Both. God's sovereignty chose Paul and inspired those words so that they are God's very words. And yet, who wrote it? Paul. Okay, security of the believer. 1 Peter 1.5. Turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.5. The security of the believer. God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Security of the believer. 1 Peter 1.5. What does it say? How are you eternally... First of all, do you believe you're eternally secure once you place your faith in Christ? What? Yes. All right. How, why are you secure? Why are you secure? Who secured you? Who secures you? God. Half the answer. Who secures you? God and... My faith. My, I have a responsibility. I have, I have accountability. I have a response. Notice what it says. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Whose ultimate power secures you? God. But those who are secure must respond in faith. There you go. You're getting it. You're getting it. Sanctification of the believer. Turn to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. 2, 12 through 13, one of the greatest passages uh, to keep you balanced in this area. Philippians 2, 12, notice what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, whose responsibility is that? Ours. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whose responsibility is that? Ours. 
four. Now here's why I should fulfill my responsibility. Interwoven, one, one thread is stronger. Why should I fulfill my responsibility? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My, re, my obedience to the gospel is what he put in me. It's his will and my desire and my ability all comes from him. And it's for according to his good pleasure, his kind. It's according to his will. I'm doing his will. But if I do his will, I better be responsible to do my part. All right. One last one. Salvation of the believer. Salvation of the believer. Acts 13. And we'll just read verse 48. Acts 13, verse 48. You can read the leading up to it. But Acts 13, verse 48. Acts 13, verse 48. Divine sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, well, let's look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, ooh, uh oh, commanded, responsibility, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were what? Appointed to eternal life did what? Believed. Don't unravel the thread. How does that work? You know what? I don't know, but I know God said it. And when I preach the gospel and someone responds, they have to respond in order to be saved. But when they do, it was because God appointed. All right. Let me give you one more. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. Second Thessalonians, Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. This is a great one. This is a great one. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. What's it say? Here's the Apostle Paul to a new church of newly born again believers. Not that old in the Lord. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Now, why should we love other believers? Because they chose Christ? No, because God chose them. Notice what he says. Because God chose you from the beginning, but he chose us for what? For salvation. And what are the means through which he saved us? Through sanctification by the Spirit. The Spirit set us apart for salvation. And what? Faith in the truth. And then notice, he called you. Okay, remember, we said calling and choosing, very overlapping terms. He says, I chose you. And then he comes back and he says, he called you. But notice what it says. He called you to this salvation. But how did he do it? Through what? Through our gospel. So that you may possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, here's what famous expositor Martin Lloyd-Jones says about Romans 9. And we'll close with this. In verses 6 through 29 which we've studied. Paul explains why anybody is saved. It's the sovereign election of God. And here in verses 30 through 33, he is showing us why anybody is lost. And the explanation is it is their own. Now, how do you put this together? Let me end with this. Few preachers have maintained this balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility better than Charles Simeon of Cambridge, 
in the first half of the 19th century. He lived and ministered at a time when the Arminian Calvinist controversy, this controversy between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, was one of its most bitter. And he warned his congregation, as I warn you this morning, the danger of forsaking Scripture in favor of anyone's theological system, whether that be one named after a man named Calvin or one by the name of Arminius. And you're like, I don't even know either one of those guys. All right, just don't fall into either side of the ditch of human responsibility only or God's sovereignty only. Here's what he says, and I like this. When I come to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. When the apostles exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself up to that side. And the reality is, as I just read through those verses together, those two sides are often in one verse. So give yourself to it. Give yourself to it. And that's, that's his first conclusion. So we only got to one out of the first conclusion is this. And I want, I, I, I just want to hammer it home because Paul does. The God's sovereignty does not eliminate human So I end with this. I ask you, listen, if you haven't accepted both, then would you accept both as the teaching of Scripture and delight yourself in both and leave the wilderness of frustration, enter into the basis of worship wonder that we have such an awesome save us. It's the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of your salvation. Revel in it. Delight in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you're greater than what we can understand. You're beyond our comprehension. You've accomplished a salvation that reflects you perfectly while still showing mercy to undeserving sin. And I pray, Lord, that we will all embrace the clear teaching of that your sovereignty is exalted over our human ability without eliminating. Thank you for calling us. If there's anyone here who hasn't accepted you, that they would take their, they would be responsible and place their faith in you alone. All of you. So we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name.